Water is fundamental to human development, from drinking water and sanitation to agriculture and more. You listen to Water Stories, a podcast series where you will learn everything about securing water, energy, and food security for all of us. In water management, we have to think about all those involved, such as communities, scientists, governments, technology, and of course, the ecosystems that play an essential role on a small or large scale. In the first episode of this second season, we discuss the Water Vision Boundaries Initiative and its main goals. And one of the pillars of the Water Vision Boundaries Initiative is natural ecosystems. In this episode, we will talk with our guests, about protecting those parts of our natural ecosystems, like uh, the Chinook salmon and other species, of course, and connection with water beyond boundaries. Once again, my co-host is Vishal Meta, an environmental scientist with more than 15 years of experience in water resources research at the Stockholm Environment Institute. Vishal, how are you? It's a pleasure to have you today as a co-host again. How are you? I'm good, JC. Thanks. It's good to be doing this again. Vishal, very interesting episode about natural ecosystems and how it's related with Water Beyond Boundaries Initiative from the Stockholm Environment Institute, right? Yes, definitely. And for me, it's a, it's a great pleasure to invite our speaker today, Max Stevenson. He's also a friend of mine and somebody I've worked with for, I think, 10 or 12 years. I think the context for today's episode is also really interesting. As you know, the Southwest U.S. has been in a deep drought. The last 22 years rank as the driest period since at least the year 880, so about 1,200 years. And the second context is that we are talking to Max. He's the stream keeper of Puda Creek. And Puda Creek runs right through town here in Davis, California. And so he will be with us to talk about the history of Puda Creek and shine a light on positive message, which I think we really need, about the restoration effort, the role of the stream keeper, and the history of this place, which is really fascinating given the history of water development and drought in California. Uh, Max, nice to meet you, and we are so happy to have you today in this third episode. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm good. Thanks, JC. No, it's a pleasure. Uh, Max, when I was preparing for this conversation, I found a term, and perhaps our, our audience would like to learn more about it. The term is a stream keeper. Max, what is a stream keeper? So that, that's, that's the name of my job. That's the position. I'm the stream keeper for Puda Creek uh, after... You know, people asking about salmon, the next most popular question is, what the heck's a stream keeper? And, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's a funny responsibility. I There was a lawsuit in 2000 that the environmentalists won called the Puda Creek Accord. So more water got put into the creek uh, for, for fish and wildlife. But part of the lawsuit was creating this position of someone to steward restoration projects, watch over the water. And uh, they called it a stream keeper. And so 22 years ago now, that was, uh, they hired Rich Maravich. He retired at the beginning of the year, and I got hired to be the new stream keeper. It's kind of like being in charge of things, but not really having any authority. You know, you have to keep the water in place and help the fish. But, you know, we don't, the, I work for the water district, the Solano County Water Agency. We don't own any of the land it's mostly private, uh, some is owned by the university. So it's all kind of soft, convincing. You, you try to, you know, help people understand and join the community to, to, you know, share the creek. The creek. 
creeks got, like you were saying, there's so many demands on water in the Southwest, the U.S. Interesting. I, I read, uh, um, probably you guys know more than me, that it's a significant stream in Northern California, right? Well, in terms of flow, it's very small. Yeah, so, you know, the Sacramento River, well, if you're from the East Coast and you look at the Sacramento River, sometimes you might say, oh, that's a creek, just because there's so much less water here in the West. But people, they hear I'm in water. I've been, I worked for an irrigation district for almost 20 years, and people always ask about the water supply, and they want to know about the snowpack, because the snowpack is like a big reservoir in the winter, and then as it melts in the spring, we can manage that. But Coota Creek is doesn't have a snowpack. It's on the coast range. So up in Lake Tahoe and the ski resorts, I'm a big skier, so I love talking about the snow. But uh, the water that we manage here, Coota Creek, it's on the coast range and op- opposite, the other side of the Central Valley, lower elevations, basically no snow, 100% uh, rain-fed system. But in, in ni- 1957, uh, the Bureau of Reclamation, the federal government, they constructed a very large dam on Puda Creek and formed a, a reservoir called Lake Berryessa. That is one of the larger reservoirs in, in the state. That's true. But the, the creek itself, before 1957, it used, it used to go dry. It would go dry um, many years, as, as creeks do in the arid west. And, uh, but not, not every year, but some years. And uh, there, there really weren't much uh, salmon the studies that the the feds did in the 1940s and 50s before they made the dam, they found no evidence for a strong salmon run. You know, occasionally salmon would show up, maybe a dozen. Some years, none would show up. Uh, two two issues: one, the you know the creek went dry, so that's not good for a salmon run. But also, the temperature of the water was a little bit high, so sometimes it was cool enough. But um, you know, cooler water has uh, greater ability to carry oxygen, so dissolved oxygen. Uh, salmon love, you know, oxygen, and well, all organisms do. But it was, it was temperatures were too high, and there wasn't, and it would go dry. So there was no regular run of salmon. Thank you, Max. Well, it's understandable. This part of the world, you know, is facing right now high temperatures. You know, Michelle. Yeah. Uh, so, Max, I was just wondering if you could tell us what the what Puda Creek was like before 2000 and before the the agreement, and then since then in the past two decades, what kinds of restoration activities have gone on, and uh, how you feel about uh, where it's leading up to and the positive uh, things that have come out of it? Uh, that's a great question, Vishal. You know, but starting in 1957, when the dam was placed, that there was now a reservoir of water to draw upon. And so by 1970 or so, the management of the dam would let water out continually. So it didn't dry up anymore. Uh, this was a big change in what was there historically. And then, you know, a certain amount of water was let out every month, even if it was wet or dry. And uh, riparian ecosystem, the trees started growing. People started enjoying being able to go to the creek in the middle of the summer, and it never went dry. But in 1991, there was historic drought in California which if you're old enough, you'll remember that. And the creek went dry and people weren't used to that. Uh, they were used to this established perennial stream that was always wet. You know, it'd been 30, 40 years of having water there all the time. And so the environmentalists, the Puda Creek Council was formed and they sued Solano County Water Agency, my employer, to put more water into the creek so that it wouldn't go dry. And on top of that, 
They wanted salmon. Even though there had never been salmon before, they said, well, you've got this big dam with a very deep reservoir. There's a lot of cold water at the bottom of the dam that's coming out. And if you've ever swim in the water out there, it's freezing. So that's like a surrogate snowpack. Even though it's completely man-made, the Puda Creek Council said, well, we want to have a salmon run and we have the cold water. And if we you know, make the gravel spawning grounds and do the other restoration practices, maybe we can do it. So that was in 2000. So Rich Maravich, the old stream keeper, he got a ton of grant money and probably more than $15 million to restore the creek. Uh, the creek had been heavily modified, channelized, mined for gravel, sewage pits. So they, they cleared it every year of all the trees for flood control for a 30-year period, kind of a, a mess ecologically. And uh, so what Rich, the previous stream keeper, has been doing is taking these grants, putting the channel into a more natural form, you know, sinuous, curving, smaller, faster, colder water, no big ponds for, you know, the, the sun to heat it up and for aquatic weeds to grow, it would be more like a natural stream. And lo and behold, starting about 2014, the salmon started showing up. Almost 500 salmon showed up in 2014. And there had never been that many salmon before. It was a very big surprise and people started getting excited. And by 2016, almost 2,000 salmon were showing up. The city of Winters, which is right on the creek near the dam, the, the town that built the dam. They, they, so they have a the Winters Salmon Festival. So they have a party down by the creek and music and beer and all there and people in fish costumes and kids doing fish art. And it's very exciting. We as humans or as a community of humans, we can create cities, we can create factories, we can create, you know, huge areas of farmland producing food. But if we want, we can also create habitat for for wild things that wasn't necessarily there before. I don't want to be playing God or anything, but we, we can manage to certain goals. And if we manage to wanting to have salmon run, we make it and they will come. I mean, they, that's what happened. They showed up. So now we've got an established run in the up in Puda Creek. Puda Creek's about 26 miles long till it hits what's called the tow drain down over by West Sacramento. And you know, the, all the spawning happens in the upper reaches because that's where the water's cold and that's where the gravel is. It gets kind of flat and it's more like a like an agricultural drainage ditch in the bottom five, eight miles. And the water's warmer there. It's not as good for salmon, but they, they swim through it. The salmon come from the ocean, swim into the delta, come up the tow drain, and then come up to the creek. Thank you, Max. The truth is that this whole cycle of salmon or activity is amazing and everything that happened around it is really, really interesting. I would like to share an audio clip of Doug Chalmers, a scientist from Stockholm Environment Institute. This audio clip is from a webinar he participated in last March hosted by California Lakes, where he shared his view on fish habitat and, and is related with this topic. Afterwards, I would like you know your opinion, Max, or maybe Vishal can add some insights as well. If we think about the context of Two of the species, um, one of them being steelhead trout. It's a threatened ESA species, and we're down to less than 10% of the historical population. And part of this, one window right within Santa Clara County where this case study is, is that between the three stream systems, 21 to 54% of the habitat is blocked by urbanization and dams. So habitat's blocked, you know, fishing, urbanization, temperature effects from climate change. So threatened and really dwindling species numbers. Similar story for the fall run Chinook 
it's a species of concern. And it really used to be one of the most abundant fish runs in the whole state of California. What I find alarming was that even by the early 1900s, it was already down to less than 10% of its historical population. And surely it's just a fraction of what it was back 100 years ago. Max, Vishal, what do you think about what Doug Chalmers mentioned? So Vishal, should I take this first? Yeah, yeah, go ahead and take it, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the, the backdrop for all this success on Puda Creek is the salmon are disappearing from California. It's been a long-term process. You know, in Alaska, they're still super abundant. It's really, it's fun to go up there and fish and, uh, you know, experience the, the resource. But yeah, here in California, they're, they've been dropping. The story is that we made these dams, all the big dams on basically every major river. And what, so let's go over the salmon life cycle a little bit. So salmon are anadromous. They, they are born up in the freshwater creeks spawn uh, their eggs are laid in gravel and then in a few weeks they hatch out and uh, eat food in the local area up in the streams but when they get three or four inches long they start migrating downstream they go all the way out to the ocean and then they spend a couple years out in the ocean growing from three inches long to three feet long you know a big salmon that you might imagine and then they come back one final time they come from the salt water go into the fresh water swim all the way back up to where they were born lay their eggs again, and then they die. But that's that's the life cycle of the salmon. Uh, these dams, all these you know wonderful hydropower resources, flood control, irrigation, water for cities, they weren't really thinking about the fish when they made these. And there is, there's no fish ladders generally. I mean, there are. There's no way for the salmon to jump over a 200-foot tall dam to spawn. The idea was that you could use, oh, well, we'll just make hatcheries. So we'll make a little fish factory below the dam. We'll raise up the fish in big tanks or the, the eggs. We'll hatch them in big tanks, and then we'll release them, and that'll be that'll keep the fish. Well, those fish aren't really doing what we thought they would. They're not, they're not, as, not the same ecologically in the system. They're um, different genetics, and then the numbers just aren't there. There's all sorts of other things that people are trying to do below the dams and for fish passage around the dams, but below the dams, doing gravel injection, giving them a place to lay their eggs. Uh, these are huge projects with, you know, 100 dump trucks working for a month, dumping thousands or hundreds of thousands of tons of gravel into the streams to try to make these beds. But there's other parts of the life cycle of food for the little baby fish to eat. The Sacramento River has been channelized for flood control and the surrounding floodplains have been drained for agriculture. So the salmon, the baby salmon, when they're coming down the stream, coming down Sacramento River, for example, there's not much to eat. So uh, UC Davis researchers have been, and others, have been raising fish in little cages. So they take the three-inch fish, dozen of them, put them in a little cage, put them in the Sacramento River, and then put them in a flooded rice field that used to be floodplain, but is now a rice field. And then they grow them up for a month, and they measure them, and see the, they're called floodplain fatties. The, the baby salmon that are in the cages in the flooded rice field grow at three times the rate of the little baby salmon that are out in the Sacramento River. And that's because the, the primary productivity, the bugs and the, the, the life that's growing in this shallow flooded rice field, only you know six inches or a foot deep, it's just way more productive. And there's more places to hide from predators for the fish. There's more food to eat. 
And the idea is that we can reactivate the floodplain by putting water onto these rice fields and managing it so that fish can grow on them. We've already done the same thing with birds on rice. So there's millions of acres of rice in, in Northern California. Gosh, in the early 1990s, they used to burn it. So you harvest the rice, there's all the stubble left, and to clear the fields, they would burn it. And in Davis, oh my gosh, I remember every fall, I'd open my door and look out the window and look up into the sky and see a multi-thousand foot tower of black smoke coming down from the north from all the rice fields around us. And I went to the store and bought an air filter for my bedroom. Um, so, but, but people complained about that. And so that, they don't do that anymore. And what they did was put water on the fields in order to, to, to decompose or make, make the, the rice stubble, the, the hay basically rot. And lo and behold, that is perfect habitat for migrating birds by the millions. These birds are coming into these flooded rice fields for rice decomposition in the fall and eating the leftover rice, eating the bugs that are there. It's a, it's a huge success story by just changing this one practice and it doesn't harm the, the farmers at all. They're still growing rice, but there's this extra benefit of having millions of birds show up. Well, we can do the same thing with baby fish. Just open it up in the right ways. I mean, there's a lot of things to figure out. It's complicated, but it, you, can, you can have a working landscape that provides food for people and food for birds and food for fish too that we can eat right i mean what's amazing about this story is how many different parts there are to it how many people and policies and actions are involved from very active changes in land management to water management to policies uh, legal actions and the work of someone like a streamkeeper who is whose job is Really, as I see it, Max, to to kind of bring about collaboration and and nudge people to do the right things, which uh, you know your predecessor did for 20 years. Thank you, Vishal. Max, when your predecessor Malkovich worked with the land owners, he co-create and he designed with them, and we know that they are essential stakeholders. How was the reaction to this new initiative or project that Markovich present to them, in your opinion? So in California, there's basically three legs to the water stool. There's three user groups. It's uh, municipal industrial, the urban, urban use. There's the ag, agricultural use. And then there's the environment. So it's ag, urban, and environment. So in this lawsuit, from 2000, the, the Puda Creek Accord, it was the environmentalists versus the urbans. So the developers of the of the dam were getting sued by the environmentalists. The agriculture wasn't part of the lawsuit. So there's maybe 25 uh, pumpers, diverters of, of water from Puda Creek that take water out of the creek to grow food and have the habitat benefits of agriculture that we were just talking about with rice. And they were informed of the lawsuit and they thought they were getting sued. So the, the farmers didn't, the landowners, like you're saying, didn't participate as much. Some of them did, you know, it's all 
many different people, but uh, you know, hun- hundreds of landowners and only you know twenty five or so uh, pumpers, you know, big pumpers for growing crops. And uh, what we need to do now is make sure that all the users of the, of the creek are, you know, honored and satisfied and working together. So this idea of a working landscape, you can have water flowing in a creek and use it at the end for agriculture, but the salmon can also use it before it gets pumped out, right? It's a, it's a shared reason. It, it can be used multiple times. And then your question with, with Rich, you know, Rich, he, he, he was a visionary. He, he would see things different than other people. He would see them as, you know, the fish coming back and the birds coming back and the trees coming back and the farmers being able to farm and the kids being able to go down and play in the water have access and have the the native plants coming back and getting rid of weeds, just the way he would talk about it. Myself, I was kind of enthralled by this. And I think a lot of other people were too. So he, he really led the way, but still the diversion of the irrigation water for agriculture down at the bottom is historic and they have a water right. But some of the, the things you do to divert water is by putting in what's called a check structure like a miniature dam. So you can just push some dirt into the creek and make a little dam, or you can have a structure with boards and you know a metal frame that backs up the water like a small dam. And what that does is it makes a pool or a pond that you can pump out of to irrigate your crops. The, those check structures are, uh, quote, barrier to fish passage. So they block the spawning adults trying to come upstream and the baby juveniles in the spring trying to go back out to the ocean. So there's a series of these of these check structures that come in and go out and there's different ones, different years, and it's just the way it's been done. It's a very common way to, to do things in creeks but and streams. But in Puda Creek, you know, there never was this salmon run before that we need fish passage. We, these are migrating fish, you know, swimming hundreds of miles. It's amazing. So they need to be able to get through. So how can we have yeah, continue to to honor the water rights of the farmers and grow food and you know have the habitat benefits of ag while letting the fish go by too there's there's no we can figure this out there's no reason we can't do it oh thank you great explanation max uh, before giving uh, Vishal the pass i would like to add that malkovich used an excellent management technique which is the co-creation Co-creation is a form of collaborative innovation, ideas that are sharing and improve together rather than keeping, you know, to oneself. So that, I think, was a very, very important that he, as a visionary, like you mentioned, use, execute, you know, this great management technique, Vishal. Yeah, I was also wondering, uh, Max, if you could uh, illuminate us about pre-colonial um, relationships of Native peoples in, in Puerto Creek watershed. Oh, gosh, that's a great, another great question. You know, the Native peoples that lived here for thousands of years, they're still here. I mean, they've got a casino up on Cache Creek and work with them and they farm too, got big farming operations and buy water and they're very interested in, you know, keeping the environment productive and habitat. I'm learning about that myself. I do not know that much about uh, how things were managed by the native peoples before before colonialization. But 
I do know they did a lot of work. When the Whites came to California, and there's tons of historic documentation, they were amazed at the productivity that they found. The flocks of geese darkening the sky, walking across the backs of the salmon that were so thick in the streams. And this was attributed to natural bounty in the writings from that period of the 18, early 1800s, 1830s, 1840s, up until the 18, up after the gold rush and the 49ers into the 1880s. And, you know, the native peoples are like, wait a second, we were managing this, maybe not the way you think, but, you know, fire is in the, in the news today quite a bit, you know, the forest fires, you know, they, they would set fires on a regular basis to keep them small and to promote the growth of certain things. For salmon, they would do the same thing. A, a friend of mine was telling me about a, a salmon ritual up at the Yurok on the, on the coast where the shaman, the medicine man, would have the, so that the, the village would be waiting for the salmon run to come so that they can uh, smoke them and preserve them for the whole year. And that's their main one of their main food sources. But before they could start harvesting, and they had all kinds of mechanized things to harvest the fish and traps and nets. Uh, but before they could catch the fish, the, the medicine man went down and would catch the first fish and then would go and pray over the fish. And they would have ceremonies over the fish for a couple days. It would take a couple days. And then when the ceremonies were done, then the village could start a, the big harvest. Well, this seems like, you know, a ritual, but it's also a management technique for population of the fish. So for those three days, the fish got to go by their village and spawn up in up in the gravels up, up higher in the watershed. And so that would be the adults that would spawn for next year so that the, the, you know, the fish, the population would continue to be high. So it was a, gosh, a harvest management quota but done through uh, ritual and ceremony. And then other examples of, um, you know, sometimes productive salmon streams get blocked when they enter the ocean by sandbars. And so the natives would go down and they would dig out the sandbar and allow the salmon to come in from the ocean to spawn. There, there were you know, hundreds of thousands of people in California before the colonial period managing the resource here to be productive. I don't know the details of how that's happened and so many things have changed with urbanization, and, but uh, I think there's a lot to learn and uh, I have reached out to the local tribe and hopefully we'll start talking soon and maybe they've got some elders or some knowledge of, you know, things we can do to help the fish and ourselves, you know, the whole system. Thank you, Max. You know, everything behind these activities, very, very interesting, fascinating, I would say. I am learning uh you know, a lot. Thank you. Vishal, I have a question for you. In your opinion, how does this related to the Stockholm Environment Institute, the Water Beyond Boundaries initiative? Well, it's a fantastic example of Water Beyond Boundaries because, as you can see, salmon need uh, a lot of space. Their life cycle is such that they need to go to the ocean, they need to come back to specific reaches of specific rivers high in the mountains. So there you go, they've broken the, the saltwater, freshwater interface right there, You're going from sea to land. And then we, as people do, have blocked those patches through dams and so on, which Max so eloquently described. And now we can just as, uh, just as eloquently and uh, you know, bring them back through management uh, of a different kind. And I think that's why I, I wanted us to talk with Max. It's like to to showcase some of these uh, 
very positive outcomes that can come. But just the level of effort and complexity that's involved in doing the same. And for me, it's also very personal in the sense that uh, both Max and I live here in Davis, and Puerto Creek runs right through Davis. And especially in the first year of the pandemic, uh, me and my family spent uh, many days going uh, hiking and enjoying the waters in the open, as did much of the Davis community along the Poudre Creek uh, in the reserves. So, and the Streamkeeper has had an important part to play in that. So I think it's, uh, uh, it's especially meaningful to us uh, who live here and want to thank Max and everybody else who has contributed to that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's great uh, example. Thank you, Michelle, for sharing with us your thoughts and your explanation about how this, the Salmon, Chinook, and the Puta Creek is related with Water Beyond Boundaries Initiative. Before wrapping up, uh, Max, is there anything that you would like to add to this conversation? Oh, yeah. You know, the Puta Creek is a really interesting example of what we can do, you know, managing towards goals of, of habitat and irrigation and uh, recreation you know it's multi-benefit is the is the buzzword these days but it's really true so can i talk about the history of puta creek a little bit more um from a flood control perspective you know this big dam was built for supply and flood control in in before the dam was built huge flood flows would come down 60,000 cubic feet per second I know that doesn't mean anything to the listeners, but a lot of water would come down and it would partially flood out the towns of Winters and Davis. But since the dam has been built, the maximum flows ever seen in the creek are now less than 20,000. So it's a two-thirds reduction in the flows. So those big flows used to kind of clean the creek. They would blast out all the dead trees. Vegetation would get moved along. And in fact, the bed load, which is uh, when creeks and streams are flowing you know, in, in flood, bottom five or ten percent on the the, the bed of the stream is active, and tons and tons, millions of tons of gravel and sand and mud is coming down the creek. Also, so you got the water on the top ninety percent, bottom ten percent is this bed, and then once the floods go away, the waters have receded. You've got a new deposition of gravel, sand the channel morphology, the shape of the channel has been changed. It's active. It's an active channel. Uh, well, that doesn't happen anymore because we don't have these large flows. And that's what's changed uh, the system. So pre-dam, you'd have these large flows and the channel would migrate. It would move three miles in one direction, three miles in another direction. But now with cities, roads, farms, everything has uh, encroached upon the channel to make it smaller and to make it more permanent. And then the dam itself, reducing the flows, helped with that process too. So from an active migrating channel with millions of tons of sediment and gravel coming down to a, basically a static or a non-active channel that doesn't have a chance to move around or have new gravel associate, placed down by the flood flows. But what it did it allowed trees to grow, more riparian habitat. Uh, shading is important. The large trees uh, shading the water to keep the temperatures cool for the dissolved oxygen for the fish. It's been this this process that's dramatically changed the very nature of the creek. We're doing that everywhere. I mean, you go to 
downtown San Francisco, it's not like the 1600s anymore, right? It's all urbanized. The, the creeks are the same. But, you know, what do we want out of these creeks? What do we want about the landscapes that we have? Do we, we want them to be static and sterile? No. Do we want them to be static and living? Do we want them to be productive? I mean, we got to grow food and we got to have places to connect with nature and provide. And we can, it's, it's not a zero sum game. We can, we can have the working landscapes. We can have maybe not all the uses because there's not enough water, but we can share a lot of it and multiply the benefits many fold. Thank you, Max, for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Um, Bishal. Well, I think that's that's all we have time for uh, this time. But um, I think, uh, Max, you've teed up a few thoughts on who else we could bring on um, to talk about this. And I want to thank you, Max, for joining us today. And it was a really nice discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Vishal. Uh, Max, I would like to say thank you for your time. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thanks, JC. Thanks so much for inviting me. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. For more information, you can contact our guest, Max Stevenson, through the Solano County Water Agency website, scwa2.com, or directly to his email, mstevenson at scwa2.com. Thank you so much, everyone. And don't forget to follow us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Alexa, and stay tuned for our next episode.